0: page 930. Acts 21, beginning in verse 1, I will be reading up to verse 14. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left... When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. My family and I have uh, been in the process for the last couple of weeks of eliminating most of our TV streaming ability, uh, mostly because it's a waste of our time and also because the ads are becoming more and more questionable. and I think for the most part we're not going to really miss any of it, but there is one thing I'm going to miss because I, I only just recently found there is a channel, I forget where it was, dedicated to The Price is Right. And it was called The Price is Right, The Barker Years was just the name of the channel, and I was so happy because Bob Barker was the best and my grandmother practically raised me on that show. Um, it's one of those handful of game shows I enjoyed, but the other game show I, I grew up on was called, it, it was called um, Here is Your Life. And uh, it was a Sesame Street spoof on This Is Your Life, and it was hosted by Guy Smiley. Some of you who are about my age may remember this. And, and on the show, Guy Smiley uh, would interview characters like, say, an oak tree, and uh, he would reintroduce him to the other characters from his entire life, and it would start with like the old lady who planted him as an acorn, and then like the sun and the rain that like you know fed him, and the neighboring trees who are now furniture, like this kind of silliness. It was cheesy, but it was delightful. And... I thought of this only because Paul, he's on this farewell tour, and this whole chapter is going to end up feeling a little bit like an an episode of This Is Your Life. Uh, He's still on his way to Jerusalem, but he keeps running into old friends and and places that are familiar to him, and he has all these wonderful reunions, but all of them have this same sad kind of ominous feeling hovering over them, uh, the sense that this is Paul's last time. And it's rough because you never like to think that any visit that you make is going to be your last. I know it's kind of like cliche, but, you know, seriously, one day you're going to you're gonna visit someplace and you'll tell yourself you can go back there any time, right? But it, you won't, you know. You'll even say while you're there, like, the next time we're here, we really should do X while we're here, you know. And then you won't. You'll never go back there. And, you know, most of our, I think, final visits to places are kind of like that. But Paul is under no such illusions. It's kind of like Georgia said to me this week that, you know, ignorance is bliss, but Paul doesn't really have that benefit. Uh, Everywhere he goes, he knows this is his last time, right? And we all have special places, I think. You know, we have favorite restaurants and places we go on vacation, favorite parks, whatever. Uh, But Paul has a special connection with dozens of churches throughout Europe and Asia, and it's kind of like having close family, like, up and down the East Coast or something like that, right? Right? How do you say a proper goodbye to everybody? Well, you can't, and, and Paul's not going to really try. That's why he skipped Ephesus and most of Anatolia as he was heading to Jerusalem. But he has to land somewhere at some point, right? So, so this final leg of his trip becomes a whirlwind tour of his life as a Christian in some ways, and all of these faces from his past— come crawling out of the woodwork to see him, and they all have roughly the same me- message for him, which roughly translated is stop. And Paul ultimately doesn't listen, but we do get some interesting uh, insights along the way. We, we start with Paul leaving Miletus and, and taking his final leave of the Ephesian elders. We read about that last week, and then it begins again into the, the typical travelogue that we've been reading in between these little stops that we read about. And uh, says, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Okay, right to Kos, that's a city on an island, like due south of Ephesus. Day later, they're in. Roads. That's about 100 miles to the east, so they made good sailing that day. And the next thing you know, they're in Patara on the southern coast of Turkey. Uh, interesting side note, this is the birthplace of St. Nicholas. He's to be born about 220 years after this fact. But at this point, it's just, just a little village on the, uh, on the coast there. Uh, actually, a kind of a, a fairly sizable city. It's a center of Apollo worship back in these days, but Paul doesn't seem to spend much time worrying about that at the moment. And apparently the ship they were on dumps them there at Patara because it was hard to find direct passage on a typical church budget even then. <laughs> so you have to bear in mind about all of this tragalog. People didn't sail for pleasure in these days unless you were an emperor. Okay? Uh, almost every ship is out here doing one of three things. They're either fighting wars or they're fishing or they're carrying cargo Uh, so military ships don't take a whole lot of passengers. Typically, fishing boats tend to stay local, so the cargo ships are pretty much the only way to get around on the Mediterranean. If you've ever seen It's a Wonderful Life, and if you're a decent American, you surely should have by now, uh, you may remember how George Bailey, not having much money, is planning this big trip to Europe, and he plans this trip, and he tells the guy at the the, the shop where he's buying his uh, luggage, uh, he says he's going across on a cattle boat. The guy says, a cattle boat, and he says, all right, I like cows. (laughs) Obvious joke being that nobody loves cows that much. I like cows just fine. I wouldn't choose typically to to travel with them unless I was saving significant money. And that's what Paul and company are having to do. They're sleeping between or on top of barrels and, and crates of goods and this kind of thing. And they're going wherever the ship is already going. What's the closest direction uh, to where we're actually trying to get. They don't have any regular ferries keeping proper schedules, so it's kind of luck of the draw. Who's in the harbor today? It's a little bit like Obi-Wan looking for a ship to take them to Alderaan, right? You're looking for Han Solo. You want the grizzly old pilot who will get you where you're going. And it would be interesting to know what kind of boats these were. We don't have any record of it. They could be smugglers for all we know. But whatever it is, this is not exactly first-class passage to Jerusalem. It's hard to find nonstop. Passage. It's hard to find nonstop flights even today. Um, Ken and I are leaving tomorrow morning for General Assembly in St. Louis. And would you believe it? Allentown doesn't have a single direct flight to St. Louis. <laughs> Shameful. Just my luck. We have to stop in some two-bit city called Chicago before we can get there. But this is what you do when you're on a budget, especially a church budget. You settle for layovers, you sit and coach, and you let the TSA poke and prod you just like cattle. It's not so bad. It means that in a very small way, by flying economy, we'll be traveling like Paul. We'll get there much faster and probably more comfortably than him, but we might have even less leg room. (laughs) doesn't matter. It's okay. Paul and company, they they find another ship that'll work for them. They get their Han Solo, as it were, and it's some guy who's heading to Phoenicia. That would be modern-day Lebanon, a little north of Israel, and he's got room for them. Uh, Luke is being slightly poetic when he calls it Phoenicia, only because that nation had been gone for centuries at this point. This is now the Roman province of Syria. Just to clarify, because it sounds confusing, he kind of jumps between the titles. But anyway, they head out on this new boat. Uh, they sail within sight of Cyprus, Luke says. Just to the south of the island they cut. And I imagine Paul felt nostalgic about that, uh, If you'll remember, Cyprus was his first stop on his first missionary journey many years ago when he went out with Barnabas and Mark, if you'll recall. So I'm sure Paul would have been glad to visit Cyprus if he could get away with it, but he has a schedule to keep, and so do the sailors. They've got their delivery to make, so they just keep moving. But I think Luke mentions this detail because he wants to remind us and let us know what Paul is seeing and give a little bit of insight into how he's feeling as they're traveling along the way. And finally, they land in Syria, not far from where his missionary journeys had all got started. They land in the old Phoenician city of Tyre. A major seaport and they need a break from the ocean apparently at this point so they decide to stay a while verse four says and having sought out the disciples we stayed there for seven days and through the spirit they were telling paul not to go on to jerusalem a couple points of interest here first off we have no record actually of how this church entire got started nothing explicit anyway we have no record of any of the apostles going there and in the book of acts uh Paul has never visited before, to the best of our knowledge. So the fact that they arrive and immediately look for the church is already kind of remarkable. Uh, because how did they know to expect to find a church there? And yet they do. They find a, a solid congregation. Maybe they had heard reports from others about a church here in Tyre. Uh, maybe Paul had met some folks from Tyre in other travels. We don't really know. But I wanted to take a, a Uh, just a small detour, because we know that Jesus spent some time in this region. Back in Mark chapter 7, I'm just going to read this little section here. Actually, you don't have to turn there. It's all right. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30, it says, And from there he, Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs.' But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So I take that little side road there just to say, you know, Jesus, he casts this demon out of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, Matthew's account calls her a Canaanite woman. Mark actually calls her Syrophoenician, so you get that compound of the, the two cultural influences there, but it's Roman Syria with a Phoenician culture, and this is one of these shocking passages because Jesus sounds so mean. It's kind of strange in a way because jesus made this trip into gentile territory and then acts surprised that a gentile lady shows up asking him for help like what are you doing here um and and he's kind of rude to the lady at first blush and you wonder how she's going to walk away feeling about this and of course jesus turns it into a brilliant teaching moment and he's actually quite tender after that initial harshness so how did this woman ultimately feel about jesus i think Today's passage, in a way, sheds some light on that. I can't help but think that it's quite possible that this woman was central to the founding of this church entire, and that her daughter, quite possibly, is among the congregants in this passage. And I think we sometimes forget about these little stories and how they all connect, but I think you're seeing that Jesus' one brief visit to the region had lasting effects. And in a sense, this church wasn't just so much founded by the apostles, it was more so founded directly by Jesus where it got started. so I'm sure there were visits by other church leaders over time. It's just interesting to see how all of this works out and and, and because of all of this, because of the work that the Spirit's been doing entire, Paul gets warmly welcomed there. These people don't know him personally, at least most of them wouldn't but he, and he's never been there he's never been their pastor and yet Paul's reputation as an important leader of the church is already established, and they take him and all his friends in for the whole week. And they love him so much that they don't want to see him get hurt. So they urge him not to go to Jerusalem. And at the end of the week, when Paul and company go to get back into a boat at the harbor, the whole church follows him. What does it say? It says, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. That's a really tender, sweet scene between a bunch of strangers. Uh, It's a big commitment to drag all the kids out to the beach for the day. Amen. (laughs) Um, I've said it before. I am the pack mule in our house, so I haul the wagon with all our crap, the lunch, the chairs, the drinks, the umbrellas, the tools, you know, and the wheels of this wagon of ours are not made for the sand so it's really hard to drag it over the sand and then you set up shop on the beach and you all just sit and bake in the sun and in my case while Georgia chides me for not applying sufficient sunscreen to all those pale Irish kids of ours <coughs> Jemmy's the only one who tans so I, I speak from experience when I say that this whole scene sounds like a hassle and a nightmare <laughs> and yet The whole church comes to the beach for the day just to see Paul off, even though they barely know him. And it's amazing that they could feel that close to him after only a week. But the fact is, believers always have more in common than meets the eye, don't we? Uh, We're family, whether we've met or not. No matter what church you visit, if they are true believers, we are related. So this is not like a a meeting of elders. It's not a staff meeting. This is a family meeting. Meeting. Every man, woman, and child in the church is escorting Paul to the boat. You would have kids climbing on Paul and his friends. You would have the women crying and men shamelessly hugging. Uh, They all know Paul is heading for danger, and all they can do is pray for him right there on the sand, and they don't want to miss the opportunity to do this in person. And so they don't send a group or a delegation, they all go. And after this, Paul and company kind of leapfrog down the Mediterranean coast. They stop for a cup of coffee, basically, in Ptolemaeus, which is a city now known as Acre. And we see briefly that, yes, there's another church there, evidence that the gospel was spreading after the persecution. Part of this is because it's said in Acts 11, which you may remember, that some of the believers, after the stoning of Stephen, fled to Phoenicia. So some of that's going on here, too. Uh, And then they take the final leg south, and they land in Caesarea, the capital of Judea. And this is going to be Paul's final boat trip as a free man. And they meet an old friend there. It says, when they had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. So... Philip is still active. It's nice to see a familiar face. You may remember this is the same Philip who was one of the original deacons of the church. Uh, But here, now, he is granted the title of Philip the Evangelist. I wouldn't have known this, but just for the record, this is the only place that we ever see that title applied to anyone in the New Testament. Not even Paul carries that title even though he does the work of an evangelist. So Stephen has clearly earned a reputation as an evangelist and a church planter. He has to be getting on in years a little bit at this point. We haven't seen him since he evangelized the Ethiopian, right, all that time back in chapter 8. And at that point, God had kind of whirlwinded him out of that situation, like literally. Last we heard, God literally just picked him up and then dropped him in a town called Azotus. And he, and we last heard that he was working his way north along the coast, evangelizing on his way up to Caesarea. And now we come to find out that once he got to Caesarea, he stopped. And maybe he had a hand in building the church up in Ptolemais and Tyre. They were, they were close enough by. That would make sense. But generally speaking, it seems like his evangelistic crusades have kind of halted since he got to Caesarea. And one might wonder why he ceased his missions work. Because such a powerful evangelist, shouldn't he be on the road with Paul doing things, you would think? You know, like, why stop traveling when you're that successful? Why bury your talents? Why not use your gifts? What is grounding Stephen in Caesarea? Well, the answer soon becomes very plain in verse 9, doesn't it? He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Well, then, I think we can fill in some of the blanks here, can't we? Holy Spirit literally plucks Philip off a road south of Jerusalem. He drops him on the coast. Philip is making his way up the coast. He's doing the Lord's work. He's full of vim and vigor. He's energetic. Everything is going great. And he gets to Caesarea and he found the one thing more exciting than successful ministry. Philip <laughs> Philip got himself a girlfriend, and next thing you know, he's married, and he settles into domestic bliss, and now he is shackled to his home in Caesarea. <laughs> he has a wife, assuming she's still living, and he has four daughters. Unmarried, Luke specifies. Luke would not specify that if these girls were not roughly of marriageable age. It wouldn't be worth mentioning if they were like six, right? So I'm picturing four eligible beauties in this congregation, which means Philip needs to be there partly to wield the shotgun. (laughs) This hampers your ability to travel freely, we understand. You can't be quite as light on your feet once you have a family. That's something Paul talks about in his writings. Being married means you can't pull put all of your hours into church work. You got to take care of your wife. You got to invest time in your kids. All pastors struggle with this, I think. We're all fairly convinced, I think, pastors, that that our ministry is so important, and we often will minister to the neglect of our family. I fail this test routinely myself. But Philip's example, even just in passing in this verse, I think is very helpful because Philip, the only man in the New Testament honored with the title of evangelist, is at home. (laughs) He stopped traveling once he found a wife and had kids. He carried on his ministry, yes, but he's still there for his family. I think that's a worthwhile lesson for pastors and all of the elders and for the deacons too because after all, that was Philip's original calling, wasn't it? So, to all my officers, don't let LVPC drain you of what you owe to your family. So, Philip's evangelistic work is now limited to the region around Caesarea, and apparently he is somewhat helped in this effort by his family, because he has these four unmarried daughters who all prophesy. It makes me think, because, you know, I have five unmarried daughters, and none of them prophesy which makes me wonder what I'm doing wrong. But, you know, it's interesting. Luke doesn't call the girls prophets or prophetesses. He just says that they prophesy. They do the act of prophesying. And I don't want to necessarily read too much into this, but I think we can draw a couple conclusions from just this part of the passage. And one is that your household always comes first. Your family is your primary ministry. There is no calling, no matter how holy that will ever exceed the importance of your marriage and your unmarried children. Paul was grateful to be single so that he could pursue ministry more fully and without restraint, but even Paul says in his writings that the man who doesn't work and provide for his family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Philip's life story bears that out. But also, I think we can draw from this that women, even young women, can play a prophetic role in the church. Now, we've talked about it before, but prophecy in Scripture does not always mean miraculous predictions and miracles. The role of a prophet primarily is to speak for God, to speak God's truth into situations, and to confront people with the word of God. Women can do that. Now, I know we're a PCA church, which means we don't ordain women to church office. I think that that's proper. But that doesn't mean that some women don't have prophetic gifting. There are many godly women in this room whose counsel I very much value. I take it seriously, and I think the church needs prophetic women, women who will point those around them back to Christ and to his word Just as Paul says, we need older women who are going to shepherd younger women. And in Caesarea, apparently the younger women are doing it too. You don't need an office or a title to do this. This passage seems to be saying that these girls are, in a sense, like partners in ministry with dad. And they may not be on the session, but they're an important asset to the church. Young people in the church, including young women, need shepherding. They need it from their elders, yes, but they also need it from older women. And if they get it, really... The best thing, too, in some ways, is positive peer pressure from godly friends. And that sounds like something the Caesarean church was blessed with in abundance, and I'm thinking Philip must be very proud. And frankly, as my girls mature in the faith, I'm quite proud of them, too. So Paul and company, they, they settle into Philip's house, and apparently... They've made good time so far, so they have a little bit of time to spare. So Luke ends up telling us that they stayed here for actually quite a while. And meanwhile, they get another blast from the past in the middle of all this. Verse 10, uh, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Stephen and Agabus under one roof. What a reunion. Who here remembers Agabus from earlier in the book? Like nobody probably, right? (laughs) He's the guy that I I mentioned before. He, He cost me points on my Bible exam when I was trying to get ordained because the sadistic minds that wrote that test include Agabus and just say, you know, who was he? And it's just like a blank. And I'm like, what? Like, I don't know. I couldn't have told you then. Now I know because Agabus was the guy who predicted the famine back in Chapter 11 as well. And here he shows up again. We have very little context for this guy. We know he's from Judea, from Jerusalem. Uh, all we really know is that when he shows up, uh, he was before hanging out with a whole troop of prophets, but it seems like when he shows up, he usually comes to bring bad news. <laughs> so he's everybody's favorite guest, I'm sure. So Agabus, what have you got this time for us, buddy? What's going on today? He says, In coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands how do you even do that? Actually, I'm just thinking this now. Huh. Anyway, never mind. Uh, He bound his own feet and hands and said, uh, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Like, dude, why you got to be so weird about things? Like, you know, like you could just say it without all the theatrics, couldn't you? Like, I don't know. And then they start, like, borrowing people's articles of clothing and in order to do, like, I don't know, it's weird. Um, but then, you know, look, laying aside the eccentricities, Agabus is only confirming what Paul's been hearing for months, apparently. When Paul told the Ephesian elders that the Holy Spirit has been testifying this same information to him in every city, he, he, he goes, you know, he everywhere he goes to, he's hearing from the Spirit that imprisonment and affliction are waiting for him in Jerusalem. Now, Luke didn't record the specifics of the testimonies when Paul mentioned them, but I assume that he didn't mention them because the Holy Spirit's been revealing these things to Paul kind of privately up till now. And I think his announcement to the Ephesian elders was probably the first time Paul's traveling companions had even heard that there was this looming threat. And now the threat is made explicitly openly, and with some measure of grisly detail. And Paul's companions react predictably. They said, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. I'm sensing kind of a pattern here. Uh, It's a pattern that'll carry forward into the next passage when we get back to it. Everyone is trying to put the brakes on this whole movement. Paul's taking this long farewell tour. He sees all these people, places from his past, and he's known for quite a while that things aren't looking good at the end of the road. He's probably known since he got spun around uh, back in Achaia, you know, a couple chapters back. And I think that's why God allowed him the chance to revisit all these old places. He's forcing him onto this farewell tour. But every step of the way, in every city, the Holy Spirit is whispering, Jerusalem is trouble for you, Paul. The Spirit's not hiding the ball. And the whisper has become a scream here in in Caesarea with this, this prophecy by Agabus. And it's very similar to the foreboding that Jesus has faced on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus's friends never understood that at the time, besides which they thought Jesus was like unkillable, right? And the universal message from Paul's friends is that he should not go. I mean, you're supposed to take the advice of your friends, right? Especially when everybody's universal in it. It's almost like they're trying to stop history from repeating itself. You know, don't do this thing, Paul. They're pleading. They're pleading with tears. Paul, don't you remember what they did to Jesus? Don't do that. Paul... Is rushing right into the 17 car pileup that, you know, on Google Maps, like we've talked about before. It's like the, what he's about to do, it's the biggest unforced error in the world. It's a completely avoidable disaster. The Holy Spirit has given you all kinds of fair warning, and his friends universally say, turn around, go back to Asia, go to Achaia, go to your mom's house, go anywhere. And how does Paul take this outpouring of love and concern from these wonderful people? Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. So Paul's friends just staged an intervention, and it was a total flop. Paul is determined to go and face his own destruction. And the way he sees it, his friends are only making it harder. You're all here blubbering and getting emotional, and you're only making me sad and making me resist my own destiny. If you've ever seen another movie, uh, The Shootist, which is John Wayne's last and I think probably his best movie, um, he knows he's dying. I'm not giving anything away. You find that out pretty much right away. He's got a terminal cancer, and the doctor tells him, you know, this is not the way I would want to go out if I were you, a man like you. He's a gunslinger, you know. And the next to last day, uh, he's staying in the house owned by Lauren Bacall's character. I forget her name, and he tells her, like, you know, tomorrow's my birthday. When I come downstairs, I don't want any crying. I don't want you to show a whole lot of emotion. I just want you to smile and treat it with respect, and and I'm going to go out for the day and I just need you to, you know, basically hold it together kind of thing. No emotional stuff tomorrow. Give me my dignity. And that's a hard pill for Lauren Bacall. It's a very emotional thing, but it's also a hard pill for Paul's friends to swallow. Very similar news. <laughs> and, and honestly, it's a bit confusing because his friends also have the Holy Spirit, right? And, and they're pleading with Paul to reconsider. And doesn't Paul himself say elsewhere that love always protects, right? Why wouldn't they be trying to protect him? Paul's death, unlike John Books' character in The, in, in the Shootist, is, it's not inevitable to an outside eye, right? And in fact... Better yet, if you go back to verse 4 again, and what the church in Tyre said, they said through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit told them to try to steer Paul away. how does that make any sense? Why does it sometimes seem like the Holy Spirit contradicts himself? I don't know how many of you have ever felt like God was sending you mixed messages about things. You ever felt that? I assume so. I was going through some old emails a couple weeks ago, cleaning out the inbox, and I, and I found one from a few years ago that Georgia had sent. We, we share the same email. She had sent this to some bigwig in RUF saying that we felt like God was calling us to campus ministry. <laughs> RUF evidently disagreed because I don't think they even responded to the email. But, um... <laughs> Or, you know, you ever hear of like a guy who feels like, I am called to marry this girl here, or vice versa, and it seems like neither the girl or any other girl seems to share that opinion, you know? (laughs) Or, you know, young men that feel called to die for their country, but their parents feel quite certain, actually, you're called to live, is what we're thinking, you know? Um... These things are mixed messages, mixed feelings. And I don't think God actually contradicts himself, obviously. The spirit is not divided against himself. But I do think sometimes he pushes us in different directions. Sometimes it seems even in opposition to each other for his own glory and good purposes. And if he seems to be sending mixed messages, there's a couple possibilities. One is that you're misreading him. That's probably the most common situation, Because your strong conviction might just be hormones, or a stomach bug, or to adapt what Mr. Banks says in Mary Poppins, never confuse the spirit with a liver complaint. (laughs) We're not Mormons. We don't believe God speaks through a burning in the bosom, right? He speaks through his word. I... I, (laughs) I once had a lady at our old church, she came up to me and she said she had this great idea she wanted to tell me about, I guess for for ministry, and she prefaced the conversation by saying, God loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) She was just being funny, And, and we got interrupted and she never had the chance to explain said idea, but I'm pretty sure it had nothing to do with moving to Allentown to Pastor Lehigh Valley Press. Other times, I I think, though, that the Holy Spirit pushes us in different directions, partly to kind of shake us up and to help us think more clearly, actually. I think he does this to strengthen our resolve, uh, to make us think, to refocus us on the important questions. Uh, Sometimes what you need to do is not really clear until you get some pushback. Sometimes being forced to defend an idea is the greatest thing for strengthening the idea, especially if it was God's idea in the first place. And sometimes the Holy Spirit seems to give people opposing ideas just to give them an excuse to display their love. I think that's a lot of what's happening here. When I was first looking into pastoral ministry, I would ask anybody anywhere, like, what I should be doing. Well, I had an uncle who thought I belonged ministering in Florida. I had a friend who thought that I should be in South America. I had another who encouraged me to go to Africa. I had still another one who wanted me to go visit Cuba with him. All of these men were good men led by the Spirit. And the Spirit gave them words in season that encouraged me, challenged me. Uh, Not because the Holy Spirit ultimately wanted me in any of those places, obviously. It was more so, I think, because I needed to broaden my perspective beyond Philadelphia and to realize God has a big world here. And because I needed to know that God was working in it. I think the Holy Spirit sometimes uses conflicting forces just to move us forward. And I think those men that were advising me on all those other things, nobody mentioned Allentown, but I think they all helped me get to Allentown, even though it wasn't their stated goal. So were they wrong? Was the Holy Spirit being deceptive? I don't think so. Because ultimately, these messages aren't actually mixed, right? The Holy Spirit is leading these churches to love Paul and to seek his well-being. Their love for Paul, especially in Tyre, where they didn't even know him, it's a spirit-led love, but there's a deeper issue here, deeper magic afoot, to borrow from Chronicles of Narnia. Do you know why Paul really needs to go to Jerusalem? Paul says in verse 22 from our passage before, a couple weeks ago, I guess, that the Holy Spirit has constrained him to go. You know what constrained means? I think we tend to read that and you think of almost like a guilt trip or arm twisting. I feel constrained to do this in the same way my mother's making me go to this party over here or something like that, right? But the word that Paul uses for constrained means literally bound. It's the same word that's used for prisoners like Barabbas in the gospel accounts. What Paul is saying is that he is a captive already. I'm already a prisoner. No one's laid a hand on him, but the Holy Spirit has effectively arrested Paul and is dragging him to Jerusalem. He has no choice in the matter. Paul is going to Jerusalem in spiritual chains, and suddenly, other words from earlier chapters begin to haunt your ears. Because what did God say to Ananias before he went and baptized Paul those many years ago? Do you remember? The Lord said to him, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul wasn't there to hear those words. But God has been showing him, hasn't he? God didn't just say, I will make Paul suffer. He promised, I will show him how much he must suffer. And he has been showing him. That's what Paul has been learning for the last few months in every city that he goes to. Paul has been fully pardoned for his sins in Christ. That's true of every Christian, but God will keep his word. And Paul will suffer because he has to and because God declared it. And because that was also the only way to reach Rome. Because there's a threat and a promise that was there in chapter 9. God promised Paul would speak before kings. Now that's kind of tricky, isn't it? Because you have to remember Jews were routinely kicked out of Rome. That's how Paul met Priscilla and Aquila a couple chapters back, right? So getting to Rome is kind of tough. But you know how you can get there? If you're a prominent criminal and also a Roman citizen, then you can get there. All you've got to do is get in legal trouble with Rome. Now can you understand the inner torment going on here? Paul's impatience with everyone's emotions. Of course he would gladly stay alive. He would gladly stay with them. But God promised Paul would speak to kings. And that will only happen if Paul faces the suffering Just like marriage overruled Philip's career as an evangelist, there is a deeper magic pushing Paul to Rome. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Paul will get to Rome, and Christ will be lifted up in the world's most powerful city. The cost of evangelism there is suffering. But Paul's death sentence is also a one-way ticket to the top, isn't it? They really need Jesus there. Rome needs the gospel. But that kind of growth is not going to come without suffering. So in the end, we know that the Spirit has one ultimate purpose, even when he seems like he's contradicting. His one purpose is to build the church of Christ, and he will keep his word. And reaching people for Christ requires sacrifice. Paul knows that just like Jesus knew it. And like Jesus, Paul so loved the bride of Christ that his life seemed worthless by comparison. That's how much Christ loved you, his church. And that's why Paul was willing to endure anything. He doesn't look at Rome and see the enemy. He sees people who need Jesus. So he's willing to face the suffering. And Jesus will keep building his church just as he still does today. Praise God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, gracious Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the example of Paul, but we thank you, Lord, that it's only just a faint echo of what your son did, Lord. He could look at a monstrosity like Jerusalem, just as Paul's looking at the monstrosity of Rome, Lord. He looks at this mess and says, there are people here that I'm going to go and die for, that he loves us that much. As we sit here, as we're sitting here as his enemies. We thank you for your love. We thank you for this testimony. Lord, keep building your church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever.